Friends, welcome to another episode of the Nation's Weekly Podcast. It is so good to be with you. I'm Joseph Carlson. And I'm Joel Parker. And you know, really, this weekly podcast is just two buds uh, in some ways. Steeped with curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Practicing the spiritual discipline of curiosity. Ooh, I like that. Yes, we get to, that's how to make it sound serious. Yeah, yeah. 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 When really, we're just, we're just curious about the world uh, and particularly about incredible and interesting people who are willing to go places and do things. Um, Really, we have a very shallow faith, so Nations is all about interviewing people with a deep, mature faith, and so, um, yeah, we've got a good one for you yeah. today. Please, so please keep our faith alive. That's right. No pressure. <laughs> today on the podcast, we have a dear friend of mine. His name is Mark Palm. You may have uh, watched uh, my interview with him, I don't know, was that two years ago, three years ago? Yeah. I mean, they probably didn't because there's probably like 10 people that were following That's true. We are growing this platform as we speak. So Mark is the founder of Samaritan Aviation, uh, which currently serves some of the most remote areas of Papua New Guinea uh, with aviation transportation and life-threatening medical emergencies. Uh, I have been on the ground in Papua New Guinea and uh, seen them firsthand. It's absolutely incredible. Mark has served uh, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I think they started Samaritan Aviation in early 2000s uh, with his wife, Kirsten, and three kids. And uh, Mark is also a pickleball champion. You may have not, you may not know that, and also a cancer survivor. So uh, without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Hey, Mark Palm. Hey guys, great to be here. We'll never have anybody like you here again. I mean, pickleball <laughs> champion. Uh, when, how, like... Yeah, that's a that's a whole story in itself, uh, and that's a, the funny story is it 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 kind of really came with cancer. You know, it's one of those things was a byproduct of cancer, really, because I I ended up with a port in my chest and and I couldn't surf anymore or be really active um, in, in uh, like in the water sports that I was into. So it was kind of pickleball was my outlet, and as I recovered from a chemo round, I was you'd get done with chemo after a week, can't get out of bed. And for first two days, because your white blood cells are shot. And so as you get energy, then I, I would kind of know how my body was feeling, whether I could go out and play a game. So I'd show up at the pickleball court and I'd go on the play with the old people initially and uh, social side. And I'd, I'd be shaky and I would get like one game in and then I'd go home. And the next day I would come and I could play two games. And then that's kind of how I was just, this, it was like a mental thing. Like I got to get outside. I got to go do something. And then I just kept getting better and better at it. And I'm very competitive. So I was like, I should compete. And so that's what we did. And I, yeah, ended up with a national championship. So now you're national champion. So when was that? It was just a month yeah, or two ago? Yeah, a couple ago? months ago. Well, 2022 national champ. Congratulations. And, um, yeah, you know, it's it's a great outlet. And um, it's what's cool is actually um, I'm, I raise money for Samaritan through my pickleball community now. Wait, how and, do you do that? Uh, it's just meeting people. If you meet me, you hear about New Guinea, you hear about okay. what we do. and So there's just some average Joe playing pickleball on a random Wednesday, and they're like, so what do you do for a living? And you're like, let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, and it turns into a long conversation, <laughs> and then they're, they're, they're watching a, a film about it. Or, or then, uh, the, you know, if, if they San Diego TV stations have done some stories on us and different newspapers, and then Everywhere also you go, they'll see doing, it. And, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's like, hey, we want to support you. And uh, even uh, I had a... Uh, director of a pickleball tournament and had me come and, and present, you know, to all the players and have a booth. And yeah, so, you know, it's like for me, I use whatever platform I have to tell my story and what God's doing. And, and what comes out of that usually is support partnerships and, and new and amazing opportunities to minister. It's a great development strategy. I was going to say, it's like, it's actually really shrewd because I mean, so pickleball, <laughs> fastest growing sport in the, in the U S right. Also 
geriatrics love it. So I mean, I, part of your story is almost actually like a Benjamin Button story. Like you started out old and decrepit because you were playing as you're recovering from cancer, and then you just slowly get more youthful, and then end up dominating. Dominating. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, hey, in theory, if you're, you know, you're playing against all the old retirees at the club, you know, I mean, they've got. It makes you feel good about yourself, yeah. you know? It makes you feel good about yourself, and also they got money that they need to invest in incredible, well, like, uh, kingdom initiatives like Samaritan Aviation. Absolutely. Dude, that's yeah. beautiful. It's incredible. It's been cool. I mean, Joel's still talking a bit of smack because he doesn't know what he doesn't know. But someday we will get out there, and he'll get uh, – Well, I mean, he'll learn. I, I, I'm a tennis player, so yeah. pickleball is kind of like, you know, it's it's like – tennis and ping pong had a baby so it's yeah. more on the ping pong <laughs> side of things so and, and, i mean you're you're an old youth pastor though as am i so maybe key, maybe it'll be the duel yeah, of the old too. yeah oh, <laughs> the, just, key, <laughs> the key word should be you used to be a tennis player i think and uh it's still trying to figure see, out the chirping, see we spent we spent literally about eight minutes together in papua new guinea like complete strangers uh, and then we went from like strangers to brothers who are just like at each other in the uh, best possible way awesome anyway we have so, so much fun. Yeah. We're just too much alike. So Mark, um, I want to kind of dive in a little bit. Um, you know, the reason we wanted to have you on the podcast is because you uh, were featuring you uh, in a full year long documentary where we're um, showing what's happening at Samaritan Aviation, which I think is one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen, um, you know, bush planes and missionaries. And, you know, it's like it's like going to where you live and operate is like opening the pages of National Geographic. It's it's unlike any place I've ever been. And so um, I'd like to, you know, I just want to bring kind of our audience into your reality and kind of bring them into uh, this dispatch series, uh, Papua New Guinea. So tell us a little bit about Samaritan Aviation. Tell us a little bit about how you uh, started at Samaritan Aviation, your love for aviation and as a whole. And um, yeah, let's go down that road. Yeah, quick version. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II pilot. Uncles were pilots. My dad was a minister. Uh, as a high schooler, I worked in a homeless mission that my dad ran up in Northern California. Had a chance to do something for people that was tangible. Uh, ended up in Mexico with my church youth group to build houses for, for less fortunate. S saw another culture, you know, that really shocked me. People living in cardboard boxes, you know, not very far from from the from the border and uh just the need was so was so uh tangible uh and then doing something for somebody uh, uh, giving them a house how, how amazing is that but then doing it in the name of jesus and sharing who jesus is and the reason why we were there uh and as a high schooler had a, I just had a moment where god spoke to me clearly called me during a devotional on an old abandoned well and it was like okay you know what i heard was mark i want you to use your passion for people in aviation to share my love in a remote part of the world 16, I come back to Santa Cruz. It's like, what do I do with that call? And uh, it was so clear. And I ended up at a Bible school in Florida, met a friend there. We went to Papua New Guinea in 1994. Kind of fit the bill for uh, the most remote places in the world. Um, aviation, the needs for aviation there is in incredible. 80% of the people live in some of the most remote communities in the world. And uh, specifically what we saw was water areas with people that had no access or hope with medical emergencies and, and how we could bring a float plane. There hadn't been a float plane in New Guinea since 1960. Uh, and how, how could we bring a float plane in there as a tool to reach these large rivers uh, and, and change a three-day trip to a hospital into a one-hour flight? Mm -hmm. And not only how could we do that, but how could we do that and not charge the people for, for any of it mm -hmm. and have, um, 
have it be a mercy mission with the, with a chance to share Jesus. And being called to be a missionary myself, it was, I didn't want to just go fly. I didn't feel called to just go fly other missionaries around, which is something other organizations are doing that are, they're doing a fantastic job. But for me, it was like, I was called to do, to get in there in the village, to, to be in, in with the people and to use a plane to be able to do that. And, you know, the journey was long. We, the, the vision came in 94. The name for the organization came in 2000 and uh, it took 10 years telling the story. To finally get to New Guinea in 2010 with my wife and three kids, Sierra, Drake, and Nolan, a four, five, and seven-year-olds, and uh, to show up on her own. You know, I packed, put the plane back together out of a 40-foot container. Uh, it took me a week to do that. Flew it 400 miles into the capital, <laughs> and it was like people, uh, even other organizations, are looking at me like, "Who, who is this guy? What How are you doing?" How sketchy is it to like? I, I mean, you're you obviously went to two years of mechanic school. It's part of the whole missionary pilot training stuff, but like to get a crate with an airplane in it and you put it together, I would be, yeah. <laughs> I would be a little, I can't yeah. put Legos I mean, together. And uh, so I, I'm just, I'm in awe of your ability to, uh, to do that. Well, it was, you know, I honestly, I, it was kind of interesting and it's the power of the call. I think, you know, for me, I didn't change my oil in high school one time, you know, I didn't do, I did zero mechanical stuff. I had friends that would soup up their cars and all this stuff. I had no interest in that. But when I was called, I knew that if I couldn't fix an airplane, I couldn't do the job God called me to. So I ended up going two and a half years of, of mechanic school. And then I ended up working in a shop for five years to gain the experience that I knew I would need uh, to actually put a plane together. Um, and that's just part of responding to the call. There's, you know, it's not all the things that you want to do necessarily, but you, the things you, you need to do to be successful. And for me, having a mechanics license, it was, it was a game changer. We could have never launched Samaritan if I didn't have that ability. And so never was one of my favorite things to do, but it was one of those things I had to learn and be good at. And uh, I'm still here, so I didn't, uh, I put the plan together properly. That's good news. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of curious. so is that like getting licenses as a mechanic, spending five years working in the shop, is that part of what was happening in that almost like 10 year gap between when you got the name and kind of clarified the vision before you guys were actually able to get over to Buffalo. Yeah, part of that, I was just finishing uh, school when we launched Samaritan in 2000. Um, and then, yeah, working in, as a mechanic, I, I, I did a lot of things. I was, I sold real estate. I worked in construction. It was kind of whatever needed to happen uh, to finally get to a point where I could go on one day a week at Samaritan and then finally was able to go on full time. How do you not, I mean, that's a long time that's to a be long... patient and persistent in pursuing a vision and a calling. Like, how did, mm -hmm. how did you find the strength to do that. I mean, it'd be really easy to just give up and, and settle down. Like, oh, well, real estate, you can make it, you can make a good buck there. And just be like, my, maybe that, maybe I didn't hear God correctly. Well, you know, I think the, the thing is God doesn't always go on our timeline. You know, we had a five-year plan. We took a photo uh, with our wives in front of someone else's airplane and we mailed that out to 330 people. And we thought, oh, the money's going to roll in. And I think we raised 330 bucks out of that mail out, you know, uh, but <laughs> Honestly, when I, the call was just so strong, you know, it was like, I guess people didn't really hear me well. And we had a little nice little logo and we didn't have an airplane. And that was the worst question. And someone would say, Hey, what kind of airplanes are you guys fly in? And it's like, well, we don't, we got a nice logo. Here. Not yet, so. <laughs> and it just, you just kept telling the story. And, and I think the, the thing is, is like, it, you can see God moving a lot of times when you look backwards and, and even though we weren't getting as fast to where, you know, as quickly as we thought we would, uh, there was always progress. Every year I could look back and say, okay, God did that. God did that. And it just kind of actually increased my faith and strengthened it. And it was just like, well, this is going to happen. And, and the call is so strong. It was like, 
I don't know, people would would say, oh, you're still here. And, you know, it got discouraging at times. I'm not going to lie that, you know, when someone you respect looks at you and says, what is this a joke? You know, this is in your 10th year here. What, what, what's going on? And, and you're, you, people are giving money for this. You're trying to buy airplanes and figure out what you're doing. But, um, it was just, you know, God was clear. And my wife was, was a trooper as well. She, you know, I told her over and over again, Hey babe, you know, we're leaving in six months, so we can't get too involved in the community where we're at and all these things. Six months later, we're leaving in six months. And like, I drug her through that for about four years, but, uh, you know, it's, she believed and, um, you know, when we finally got there. We were so relieved. We, we just were just so excited to finally, um, implement what God had shown us. But I, I think, you know, it's part of the, part of God's call in all of our lives is the journey, you know, and, and we wouldn't have been ready to, to go, you know, five years before. So we just weren't mature enough spiritually. We weren't mature enough as people. I didn't have enough experience as a leader, um, and so, and we didn't have the financial resources, the government connections and relationships. And so all of that you build up over time and, um, you know, they say God's timing's perfect and that's been true in my life. So was there like a, was there a tipping point where you guys went from like just breaking your backs to try and raise funds and cast a vision and, uh, the, and you got over that tipping point and you were able to finally get, you know, over to Papua New Guinea and have a plane and. You know, no, there, there's no, there, there was no tipping point. I remember uh, four months in, we were down to five thousand bucks in the account. Like I didn't, we didn't have enough money to go home. You know, f- tickets home were more than what we had in the bank, and we were running out of fuel. And you know, I remember, I was, I one of this, one of my buddies actually calls me from the from the states, and he says, um, "Hey, you know, I, I came into some money through some business things, and I want to give you guys a donation." And he named a number and. And I was just blown away because the number he'd never given up to that point. And um, he ended up sending double in what he told us. But he didn't even know we were down to $5,000. And he just called me and he's like, hey, this, this settlement came in. We're going to send some money in. But those, those miracles happen. And we call them God stories. But they just happen over and over again. Uh, we, we've never had been that organization that was sitting around with a pile of cash wondering what to do with it. You know, it's always been like God just continues to bring us back to our knees and just says, Hey, this is your thing, you know? And it's like, that's just keeps your faith strong. And, and, um, it's a faith walk, you know, that's what this is. And that's what life is. And expand, we, we have a goal to reach a million people in the next 10 years over there to be serving a million people. We're serving 300,000 right now. And to get there, it's a huge goal, but we know God's in it and it's his plan. And, and, uh, we just got to keep, keep working and doing our part. So talk to us about that. Uh, I know in the second episode of the Dispatch series, we uh, we journey uh, down with you to Kapuna Hospital. And so that's a big part of the expansion of Samaritan Aviation. So what are you facing right now as you look at scaling Samaritan Aviation to reach more people, to hit that number of a million people? Yeah, you know, I, I think the God really spoke to me clearly last, last summer. I was over in June, and uh, we were looking at whether we knew we were expanding to the south side, and it was, it was between Gulf and Western province, two provinces there that are, both have the same issues. It's lots of water, no roads, remote communities that don't have access or hope for medical emergencies. And um, so I was sitting with the, with the government leaders in, in uh, Karama and the capital of the Gulf province, and I put a map of the, the Gulf province up on the little projector. I stuck it up on, I was in this dingy little office and this dirty wall. And I just stuck the picture of this map up there. And I said, guys, 
I was with the, the rural health director, the provincial administrator, the hospital CEO, and some doctors. And I said, guys, where are you reaching? You know, we're, this, this, this place is 150 nautical miles wide. We're in the capital. You guys have your budget. How far out are you getting? And uh, they drew a little circle. It's about 30 miles out into 150 miles. And I just, there's just rivers. And I've flown over in a helicopter of this area a few years ago. And there was like a guy sailing a canoe in a, with a palm frond as a sail. Wow. You know, and I'm like, who's out there? And every time I'd ask that question, nobody could give me an answer. They're like, well, no one's been out there in 10 or 15, 20 years. We don't even know who's living out there. And so I'm sitting here like, there's water, we have float planes, we, we've, we are called to reach those communities. And I looked at the them and I said, well, what about those people in those remote villages? And I pointed to this area on the map where there's river and water. And I said, what about those people? What happens when they have a medical emergency? What happens when they have a breech birth, snake bite, tuberculosis, any type of trauma? And I'll never forget the lady that was in charge of rural health. She looked at me and, and she just kind of offhandedly, she just said, she said, well, they're just used to dying. And I, I just sat there and I just, I just felt God just speak so clearly. It was like, this is why you're here. This is why you're here. And that's where we're going, the Gulf. And in the middle of the Gulf, there's this hospital at Kapuna that's been there 60 years. They've done an amazing job of bringing up Papua New Guinean staff. They have a discipleship training school. There's a, they have some medical training school as well. But they have no way to get people from those remote communities into that hospital. So the capacity's there, the staffing's there. And I feel like it's the time is now for us to get over there to start uh, working with them. They've, they've officially now invited us over to come and join, uh, to give us some property to build our houses, uh, to put a, to put a hangar on the river for our two airplanes. Uh, so that is happening. It's official. I'm actually going to be over there next month, um, with my wife, we're going to fly the float plane over to Kapuna, um, middle of next month and have more meetings with the hospital and the leadership. The government's come on board. We uh, signed an MOU with them in, in September, which was a, a incredible. I, I don't know anybody other other than, it's another God thing, like to go in there to get an MOU signed with the government in a What's couple weeks. So a mem memorandum of understanding, okay. we, we would say like a partnership agreement, okay. um, which is required for them to, to fund, right? And so to get that done as quickly, it was another God thing. And then I was just told by the governor uh, two weeks ago that we're on the budget for 800,000 US this year to help with expansion costs. And so it's Incredible. just God's doing some just <laughs> crazy stuff. And you got a new airplane. Uh, and, you know, I was over there in, in September with one of our, of our donor families, and I get done with this meeting, and he looks at me, and he says, I guess it's, now it's time to get your next airplane. And <laughs> I was like, okay, awesome, let's do this. And so we found the plane in uh, Minnesota, and I literally, um, I flew it out from Colorado a couple weeks ago. It's in Phoenix right now. It's going into the paint shop in a few weeks. It's getting interior done, a bunch of stuff. We got to raise some money to get all the modifications done on it. But it's it's unbelievable. Uh, we we have that plane. The the third plane, the first plane for Gulf, is actually going in a container in the next three weeks. That'll be on its way to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, there's a happening. lot of cool stuff happening. It's all and happening. God's God's real, and we you know we're. Yeah, we're just trying to keep up right now, honestly. It's, it's like, incredible. It's and awesome. I, I think what's yeah. so encouraging about your story is like like the payoff of faithfulness. Mm. You know, like yeah, I think you're just naturally courageous. You have like you have a strong spirit. You are uh you're like a you're like you're you're just a tough dude. And uh so I look at your story and I think about how 
you know, for 10 years, you're just planning and preparing. And I know how you like to do things and do it quick. And so that's, you know, the, the, the act of just patience is amazing. And then um, the journey of actually going over there. And I've, you know, we cover a lot of stories. I, you know, I did a documentary in Iraq and during war and I felt safer in Iraq than I did in Papua New Guinea with you <laughs> just because of, you know, you're telling me stories like, oh yeah, last week, you know, like they, uh, you know, this, this a volleyball game went bad. And so they start blowing up each other's houses and you're just driving down the street where that happened. And that's, that's normal to you. And, and just like, oh yeah, we had a, you know, a person visiting who, you know, got attacked by a machete and, and just like all these stories. And, uh, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, the adversity of how difficult Papua New Guinea is. I don't think many people understand that. Yeah. They see the, the exotic, um, display of jungle and, you know, an island nation and, and all this stuff. But like, talk to us about like just the danger and choosing to bring your family into that danger. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting, my wife had a great quote one time. She said, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And, um, that was when someone asked her that same question about bringing your family to Papua New Guinea. You know, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, they call it the last frontier for a reason, you know, uh, all law, law and order ends at, at town and that's not very good. So out, out in the bush areas where we work, there's no law and order, um, at all. And if the law does come out there, it's very violent, uh, just because they're trying to rule through intimidation and, and fear. Um, so a lot of what happens out there is village justice. And so I liken it to like wild West, you know, back in the, you know, early 1800s in the States. But it's, um, yeah, it's a wild country. The, it's an eye for an eye culture. So you're kind of starting with that. You know, if you hurt me, I hurt you. And, and, and the challenge is that they don't hurt you. They, they hurt whoever's in your village. So it's, everybody's at risk. So it's so your daughter's at risk. Your father's at risk if you do something bad. So it causes everyone to live in fear. And that's a tough place. And then you add the animistic belief system. Um, anything you don't understand is sorcery or it's uh, sanguma as they call it. Uh, something, uh, somebody put a curse on you. Uh, there's spirits at work, um, crocodiles turning into men, uh, and walking around. I mean, there's just stories and stories and, uh, they still, there's spirit houses there where this, it's just, there's the belief system still very strong, which is wild because when I think of Papua New Guinea, um, I always think of like, oh, that's where every missionary goes. It's like either, you know, it's like a, it's like as common as a youth group going down to Tijuana, Mexico to build a house is like, I feel like so many missionaries go to the PNG. And if you look at like the statistics on, um, or look, look, look it up on Wikipedia. It's like, oh, it's a 95% Christian nation. No. And your account is obviously much different than what is being. Yeah. You know, I think the, the it's like any place it's, it's easy to give statistics and numbers and, and, you know, when you're on the ground and, and I'm not discounting any other missionary organization, but it's an ongoing battle and it, it's a worldview that's so far from ours that to understand grace, there's no word for grace in a lot of the languages over there. there's 840 languages there. What, what is grace? You're trying to explain that. Like that's that just that simple thing of, of a gift without it, a, a free gift, right? That you don't deserve. What does that mean? Right. So trying to model that through what we do where we don't charge for flights and we come in as a free service with no, all, the only thing you have to do is get on the plane, right? And, and that's all we require, get on the plane and we'll take you and, and help save your life. 
that's a starting entry point into what, what grace is. Yeah. It gives us a platform to then talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. But you're, you're, it's a constant battle because when you've been raised a, you know, a certain way your whole life and you see things from a certain angle, it's a lot of, a lot of discipleship is bringing people back into line with scripture, mm -hmm. you know, when the fear comes. And I could tell you story after story. Um, you know, I don't know how, um, I don't know how many stories you want today or how, how much storytelling I can do or how graphic well, I can be. If it's a good one, then you're, you're free to share it. But if it's a lame one, then we'll just go. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, so I'll give you a story of, of our staff, right? We have, a, we have a staff member who's been working with us for 10 years that goes to church regularly. Um, he comes into the hangar one day and he says, he says Mark, uh, just wanted you to know there's a bad spirit up on the hill because they live up, up on the up on the there's a little hill behind the airport in their bush house and he said there's a bad spirit that's coming up here and i just want you to know i might need to call you you know in the middle of the night and have you come help me and i'm like okay you know uh let me know you know how how you're doing and we, we prayed about it and uh a few days later he comes in and and hey how you doing he's like oh the bad spirit came to our house last night and uh his son's name, Mark, is named after me, which is it's a huge honor. But he's like, so he's telling me a story. He's like, he's, he's five years old. He said he came into to little Mark, and uh, and I said, well, what what did you do? He said, well, I, he said I had him pee in a cup, and then drink the urine, mm. and then uh, when he threw up, the evil spirit left him, and went off, and. You know, that just opened a conversation to like, okay, well, let's talk about this. You know, yeah. who, who is Jesus? How powerful is Jesus? Who's the big spirit? Who's got the most, who's got the most powerful spirit? That's, mm -hmm. that's the Holy Spirit and that's Jesus. And we went back to scripture and, but that's, you know, the, the, the first thing is to go back to what you've been taught right. and there's still places they're marking witches in New Guinea. If, if something unusual happens, uh, they'll, they believe that, you know, someone ate the heart out of the guy who had a heart attack or whatever in the spirit world. Um, and then they'll mark witches and they'll torture them. And, and this is happening, um, in the, in the mountains, especially in some of the upper areas where we're at, um, still happening. It's so you know? fascinating to me that your guys is, you know, the ministry and the service that you're providing to this remote population is such a holistic one. I mean, it's healthcare, right? I mean, it's, it's obviously... You know, crisis and emergency is the primary in that you guys have. But from what I understand, you know, that's kind of a starting point where you guys are then trying to help them understand and practice better healthcare in, in different ways and, and use that as building up the community's overall health. But how, how, so this is a really physical, tangible, you know, uh, bodily sort of thing, but it intersects so often powerfully with the spiritual realities that you're contending with over there and that are, uh, have really shaped the people's like hearts and imaginations. Um, so that just, it just strikes me for some reason. I don't know if I have a spe specific question there, yeah. other than it just seems, I don't know, maybe appropriate actually. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, the, what, how you believe about us, the spirit world or about who we are as, as believers shapes the rest of our life, right? It shapes everything. It shapes how you react to good things, how you react to bad things, how you, what your expectations are out of life or, or, and, and so for us, you know, we have a big part of what we do as a hospital ministry. When we bring these patients from the middle of the bush, they've never been in an airplane. They've, they've never seen the ocean. They've never seen a vehicle or electricity a lot of times. And then you pick them up in this 
very traumatic time where they feel like they know in the past their loved one has died from whatever uh, that you're picking them up for, you know? And, and so you're, you're basically doing something they've never seen, which is to get them to help uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, and then they're all of a sudden, they're in the middle of this more developed kind of area with cars and electricity and they're in a town, they're afraid, they, they, they don't know anyone. And so then we have a team that goes in every day, prays with them if they don't have clothes and they, they need clothes, feeds them, uh, gives them clothes, feeds them, and just shares Jesus. And we also give them audio Bibles in their own language. And um, it's just, yeah, it's just it's a lot of times it's their first point of contact with, mm. with who Jesus is. And, and we're kind of the tip of the spear. And that's, that's exciting. And that's what we do on a regular basis. We flew 23 patients in last week. You know, and everyone has a caregiver. That's 46 people that we're, we're serving and ministering to in the hospital. Um, and our team is amazing in there. And it's, everyone is just passionate. We're here to share Jesus. And we have gifts and we can save your life, but it's all about where you're going for eternity. Real simple, practical question. And I think you have uh, one. Okay, so you're serving these super remote villages. How is it, how are you getting the calls for... Yeah, so uh, in the early days, it was HF radio, so high-frequency radio, which is like a ham radio. Um, now the, they've dropped some cell phone towers along the river. Uh, so there's still a lot of times they'll run 30 minutes, climb a coconut tree to get the, the reception, or they'll climb a mountain to call us. Um, but that's how they do it now. There's usually uh, the eight posts that we serve, the 48 posts that we bring medical supplies into. And so they they all have our information, and they know where the cell towers are, are at. And then... Uh, we also have villages if they're not near a aid post that one person usually has a cell phone and you can sometimes they'll paddle three, four or five hours to get to a place to call us. Just so crazy. But, like, I mean, everybody's, everybody has cell phones now. It's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember it, it was wild. <laughs> yeah. It used to be like, you know, the, the white guys show up with the cameras. Now the white guys show up, everyone else has the cameras. They're like, look at white guys. Yeah. They're taking photos. <laughs> yes. so, anyway. All right. I'm, I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready for a little story time with uncle Mark. So okay. if you would uh, f turn your uh, attention to the screen, okay. um, tell us about, tell us about this moment right here. Oh, geez. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not my finest moment, I'll tell you, as an aviator. We're just really here to honor you. But, uh, yeah, thanks for, for bringing this up. Uh, at the time of this photo was taken, I didn't know how bad a shape we were in. We were ignorant at the moment. Yeah, yeah. we had no idea yeah. how what a pickle we were in. Not to use a pickleball term. But, uh, so we, this is an area, I don't, there's never been a float plane that's ever landed here, I can assure you. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and... Uh, it really came as your fault, Joel, because you it is couldn't figure out how to turn the camera on out on the wing. And you said, hey, guys, I need a land so I can turn the camera on because we had a camera out, a GoPro. Uh, so we landed in a spot in the middle of nowhere uh, to get the camera working. And we kind of wanted, it was like, well... Well, look at it. It's, it's also, it's we flew in over beautiful. that ridge right yeah, there. It, and it's uh, incredible uh, beauty. And this beautiful river. Yeah. And it was a big pile of looked like sand from the air, and it was a big pile of rocks once we got there. So I was thinking um, I get to a spot and just, you know, pull over like I normally do, beach the plane, we'll jump out, mm -hmm. do whatever we need to do, get the cab working. And um, what I didn't know is how shallow it was, how shallow it was from the edge of the river. And so as we taxied in, I, when I shut, when I, we hit the, the rock, I shut the, the engine down like I always do. The current grabbed the plane, turned it sideways, and we started bouncing 
down the river. And our chief pilot, Luke, he's like, we're in it now, he says, <laughs> as he jumps out into the water. And, Crocodile infested. And, uh, yeah, there's crocs here. We don't know what's here. And I, did, I do distinctly remember feeling a clunk, a little extra clunk on the plane, but we got it straightened out. We drug it up out of the current, which is what we're doing there. Uh, you can see Joel's a big help. He's out taking photos, and we're dragging the plane. It's up, up the... Glad I brought this story up. up the, I'm just getting uh, yeah. thrown under the bus here. <laughs> so like, you, 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 when you told me this you this is actually all your fault. Yeah. So anyways, um, total bad uh, decision on my part, not realizing how strong that current was with the rocks. But we get it off the rocks, and we're ready to go. Long story short, and I'll keep it short because the details are, are not great, but we find there's a hole in the float and it's, it's filling up with water and we're out in the middle of nowhere and we don't have like anything to fix it with. So I put some speed tape on there. Joel, pumped, Joel and I pumped the floats out as fast as we could to try to beat the water that was coming in. And, uh, and then we got out of there, but on takeoff, we, we felt like this catch and we thought we hit a log, weren't sure. And I, and, I, and I looked at, the, at the Luke and I said, I think with the gel coat ripped off the bottom of the float. And that's what happened. We ended up landing back at Karama the Capitol. And the danger is, is that, you know, you're, that turns into a boat real fast. It's going 60 miles an hour. So you have a small hole, all of a sudden it's a big hole. And yeah. the, the danger would have been if we would have tried to land on water back at Kapuna Hospital, like yeah. the plane could have flipped. And so, yeah, uh, we get back. Leaking and yeah, flooding. And yeah, it was. It was back a, at Karama, We you, <laughs> you jump in a taxi and you buy out the hardware store of all the epoxy and, and the yeah. hall of, all of South Papua New Guinea and uh, and uh, yeah. with your we know found how a five, and, uh, a five, five we're all inch. mixing and and uh, applying and and uh, yeah, by God's grace, it all worked out. And now it's just a, a funny story. That's apparently all my fault. So. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but look at that location. But, like but I, I thought of Joseph actually the, there cause Joseph's a huge fisherman. And I'm like, this yeah, is like one of the I, most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. It was, it was a great idea, Joel, until it was a bad idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it wasn't your fault that I uh, made the bad decision where I docked. Uh, but it's a great story and we all yeah. survived. That's the good news. And, uh, yeah, and it was part of, it was part of actually the purpose of going was exploring yeah. and trying to figure out where are people. And the, and the interesting thing that I noticed is everywhere we would land in that plane, every village, as soon as you'd even fly over, mm. people would just come from all, I mean, all of a sudden you'd have 400 people on the banks, wherever we would land that airplane. We landed here and didn't see anyone. We were there for probably an hour and a half. And so that was yeah, we very in interesting. It was, it was very yeah. remote. It was, that was the land of the unexpected there for me uh, personally. That's kind of a tagline for the country, land of the unexpected. Mm -hmm. cool. It's a great tourism cap, capture, yeah, uh, cap, tagline. Okay. So any other updates or questions that you want to ask? Because then I have a question for both of you guys. So I'm going to respond to. Oh, let's see. Um, man, yeah, we talked about the new airplane. We talked about the hospital, a lot of this is covered in the dispatch series. And so I, yeah, I think, I think, uh, that's self-explanatory. just want to throw a little plug in there. Um, so if you haven't subscribed yet to nationsmedia.com where you can, not nationsmedia.co, where you can me, see the whole dispatch. Tell me series. more, Joseph. Yeah. I mean, it's, we've got lots of great, op no, yeah. Why don't you, why don't you hit them with the last question and then we got hot takes. Yes, so do you want to do that right now? And then hot takes, I mean, no, let's, Let's wait on that. Yeah. Okay. okay so well, I can I can plug the dispatch series too, if you want me to. Well, I mean, we, yeah, we, we got See what that. You got. Yeah. Guys, I was reading this, the Bible. I don't know if you guys read the Bible, <laughs> but I I do. 
just so you're aware. And, you know, one of the, I was last week, it was, it was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. And it says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And I, I was reading that, like this idea of, of for Christ's love compels us. And what does that mean? Like to be compelled it's almost like uh, it's almost like this intense need to do something. It's like it's an action, and I thought, and I honestly, I was thinking about dispatch, and you know, one of the challenges for us as an organization is how do we tell our story in a way that compels somebody, that gives them that sense of urgency to do something, to react, to either go themselves, to follow whatever God's calling them to do. Right? There's that action, or to reach in their pockets and donate and partner with us, and so just. The, the, the struggle for a lot of organizations is there's great stories. There's God stories all around us. But how do we get to tell those stories? And for us, that's what's exciting for me about Nations and about this series is it's God stories. And I'm, the goal for me is that it compels people to do something. It compels people to strengthen their relationship with God. It compels people to look around their area and say, what are the needs here? What am I doing with my life? Uh, it's all about purpose and generosity, really the two things that, that bring happiness yeah. and having God's purpose. But I'm just excited because I feel like the way you guys are telling our story is going to compel people yeah. to do something, to get engaged. And that's for us as an organization, just really cool. That's so really thanks. that's really cool. And <clears throat> I like that word compel. We use the word uh, invitation. It's, it's accomplishing the same thing. And I you think what was so incredible about Christ as a storyteller is his stories weren't all that spectacular. They were kind of strange and ethereal and, you know, and people are kind of scratching their heads, but where they were so great, it was this invitation. Like you get to be a part of this story. Right. And um, yeah, and that's the joy that Joseph has in editorial and I have in the film department is that we get to, you know, find people like yourself and everybody who's serving um, down at Samaritan Aviation and invite our audience to just participate just by listening and, and being encouraged and um, yeah, and partnering if it's, if you know, the Holy Spirit moves in that way. And, and that's, uh, it is a joy to, to get to be able to do this. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and maps on to the curiosity, how we've, we've been talking mm-hmm. about that, you know, part of the point of this podcast too, is we want to, what is, what is that driving force that gets people out into the world? Well, I mean, it's, for us as believers, it's the love of God, you know, um, mm-hmm. that the overflow of that that moves us out into the world, into places of brokenness, to try and be the hands and feet of Jesus and to share that love in, in tangible ways and spiritual ways and everything. But curiosity is also this really powerful motivator, right? If you if you are curious about the world, it's impossible to be cynical. Mm-hmm. If you're curious about the world, what happens when you're in a posture of curiosity? You move towards the thing that has captured your attention, you know? And if for us, if our attention is captured by Jesus, um, and we see him all over the place, and we see the need, then it's impossible to not move towards it. So I love your description there, and thanks for sharing that, that, that yeah. scripture. All right, you're hired, you're hired as, a, uh, as a pitch man for this. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we need we'll it. We'll have you back. Okay, so my question for that I love to hear you guys respond to, because uh, you are both pilots. And I'm a lot, I'm an aspiring pilot someday. I, my grandfather was a pilot. You know, oh. I wanted to. 
I always wanted to, to be one. So thankfully, I get to hang around you guys in draft. So aspiring pilot, yep. rookie pilot, veteran pilot, just to be clear. Oh, the whole continuum. <laughs> you know, so in your story, you talk about how, you, you know, you, you had that powerful moment where you felt like God talked to you and said, hey, Mark, I want you to use your passion for people and for flight to serve people at the ends of the earth. Um, and so we've talked a lot about how your love for God, you know, and people is the kind of driving force behind Samaritan. But like, I kind of want to hear about you guys and almost the spirituality of flight or how flight has connected to connects you to God mm-hmm. uh, and to other people because honestly flight is ridiculous I mean it's something like it's one of the most insane things that we as humans have figured out how to do which is just astounding to me um, and like I know that I mean that I can still remember that first flight that I ever took it was in fifth grade and I was heading down to Guatemala to uh, visit some villages that my dad worked with. And yeah, that sensation for the first time is something that will, will never leave me. So I'm curious, is, is flying just get old? Is it, am, am I over spiritualizing this or is there a, is there like a kind of a spiritual component or any lessons that you guys have taken away as you guys have spent time in the air? I've always thought of it this way. Um, <laughs> and I think like when we get to heaven, you know, we're going to be sitting around a bonfire and, you know, all these people from all these, this is Joelology, by the way, this is, this isn't like out of the (laughs) Bible or anything, but you, but you you know, it's like, we're, yeah, we're the, you know, we're the, what the fourth generation of pilots, you know, what, you know, aviation has been around 120 years and, uh, and, and, you know, just to be able to, you know, be around that bonfire, like, oh, you know, when did you live? Like, oh, you know, I was born in 1978. And like, oh, well, did you get to fly in an airplane? Like, you know, and, and I think, I just think it's, it's always been, you know, just the magic of flight has always been, um, you know, really, I, I still feel like a little kid who, with his arms out wide, you know, running around the front yard every time I, I get to power up a, you know, a little Cessna and pull back on the yoke and mm. take to the sky. And <clears throat> what I think is so special about it is, is that, you know, for, to see it, like how, how you use aviation mark is it's like, it's, it takes that, that child like awe and wonder of like being able to take to the sky and how every generation of mankind has always looked to the birds. I'm like, Oh, it'd be amazing to fly one day. And everybody has flying dreams. And, and now you, it's actually like this holy invitation. Like, yeah, I've put that in the heart of man because one day, um, you're going to exist and you're going to, you know, serve a people group that is, basically unreachable if not for a Cessna 206 on floats. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, for me, it's like, I've, I've always uh, really seen God through creation in general. So whether it was surfing, a lot of my most uh, greatest moments have been out surfing and which is communication with God. And, um, and uh, he's spoken to me a lot out surfing and in nature I've found. And so, um, Flying is, is very similar. You see it from God's point of view a little bit. But, I mean, he's way up higher, but, you know, uh, you, you're, still, you're still seeing. And, you, and you, you also kind of realize how small we are, you know? It really humbles you because, like, you just see a bunch of little cars down there. Especially the higher you get, the smaller everybody is. And um, so for me, it, this, that feeling is always awesome. You know, I think the only time aviation, you know, when, when there's... Aviation can get stressful, obviously, if, if uh, that was a very stressful moment on the river there when we punched a hole in the float. Um, 
you know, when there's bad weather, when someone's dying, the, the fun is obviously uh, not, you're not, you're not like, oh, I'm a little kid here at that time, right? Right. You're, you're just like, I got to survive. I need Good to job. get down. Uh, you know, the weather's bad, uh, engine problems, whatever it is. I've had all of those things. Um, the fun's over at that point and you're in survival mode. But I think the, um, it never gets old. Like, honestly, like I flew la last week, I, 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 several times and every time it was just, a joy to get in the plane and go and just be like, this is so cool. You know, I've been doing it for 28 years, but, uh, it never gets old. Yeah. Yeah. Flight's capacity to, uh, shift your perspective. Uh, I think that's one thing that, that faith does. That's one of the mm. gifts and the challenges of faith is, is saying, well, Hey, um, if we're more than just rational materialists, you know, if we allow that there is a spiritual reality, um, and that God is, is real when we are going about our, our daily life. Um, faith is that thing that shifts our perspective, that asks us to look at brokenness differently mm -hmm. and say, you know, or to look at somebody who's an enemy. <clears throat> like in your context, you know, um, this idea of grace is this radical perspective shift. And yeah, I know anytime I've climbed into an airplane, that's one of the things that um, any... The stresses and the anxieties um, that I have, the petty ones that are mm. usually so egocentric, that I get climb into the plane with are quickly left behind mm -hmm. and it's easier for me to, uh, to slow down and to ask, uh, the larger questions like, Hey, what, what am I not seeing here in my life? Um, so I think it's, it's really beautiful. It's mm, cool. Well, I think we've, uh, I think we're coming, coming in for a, a landing pun. Ooh, oh, <laughs> I like that. Are we a short final or are we <laughs> a five mile final? Or is this a short final? <laughs> Uh, well, you got, we got some hot takes. We got some hot takes. Uh, this might be like a segment that we're, we're going to try. Hot okay. Takes. So Joel's prepared. You're a good a guinea pig. Of, yeah, good guinea pig. All right. Guinea. These have to be quick answers too, all right? We don't oh, want no. like long-winded Mark here. You got to shorten it up. <laughs> you got to shorten it up. All right. Best aviation movie from the 80s, Top Gun or Iron Eagle? The Top Gun. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick? Top Gun. Okay. There Old school. There, I love it. Yeah, I, love I had it. to think about it because they're both very good. <laughs> okay. Well, better climate. WeeWack, Papua New Guinea, or San Diego, California? Oh, man. That's a tough one. Um, for surfing, Papua New Guinea. For pickleball, San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> what about for aviation? Uh they're both similar. A lot of a lot of clouds. We get a lot of fog here, and and uh, in marine the summertime, layer. marine layers. So it, over there, it's it's rain and and big thunderstorms. All right, we're gonna test your uh, pickleball knowledge here. Where was pickleball invented? Uh, when and where? Yeah, when uh, and where? When and where? Oh yeah. my gosh! Let's go. I National think it was champion. in the '70s in uh, in Seattle area. Well, you're wrong. Close, but sorry, uh, you're, you're dealing with two guys here from the Pacific yeah, Northwest. Pacific so the, the year was the year mark was 1965. Ooh, I was just off by five years. Location, uh, actually, an island nation known as Bainbridge Island. Bainbridge Island near Seattle. Yeah. Yes. Okay, come on. Joel Pritchard, Bill Bell, and Barney McCollum. Okay, so now you <laughs> know you're. World. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> <laughs> By game, we grew up playing in like PE up in oh, Washington. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be raining outside, and so you couldn't do like any field activities. So we like they're like, oh, pickleball invented over on Bainbridge Island. Now it's like the most popular sport in the world. So I, I have heard it was named after the guy's dog. 
pickle. I think I think you're right. But I could be that could be a folklore. Excellent urban legend that we should perpetuate. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Okay, uh, best food in uh, the Papua New Guinea backcountry in the bush. Oh, in the bush, uh, smoked fish. What fish? It's like well, they have a lot. They have tilapia and they have. Um, How about that Spanish mackerel that I caught? Well, you said backcountry bush. I'm thinking village. Okay. Like river. Okay. So this is the, like ocean fish. Coast. Yeah. You're talking about okay. ocean fish. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, Spanish mackerel. Okay. Are you talking about that fish that you're too afraid to hold? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. He did hold we it. We talked about this in the first episode. I have a fear of fish. Yeah. My so, so, yeah. But honestly, I've had a yellowfin over there that, that even tops that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. Okay, worst food in the Papua New Guinea bush? Sack uh, sack. What is that? Sack sack is a starch from a sack, uh, sago palm tree. And uh, it's made two ways. They, it's jelly form, which is basically like eating balls of snot. <laughs> That, that. Like my fear of fish is his dis and uh, like and for sack sack. Out in the village, they make it into a pancake. Uh-huh. Neither way is good. And it's they, like tofu. It's like, it takes on uh, whatever is around yeah, it. Yeah, and the same. They flavor. really enjoy it if it's a little fermented, which adds a little. Uh, ed, of course. Yes, a little extra flavor, as they say. San Diego, it's those kombucha lovers around here probably take right. They'd be, they'd be yeah, all, all over it. it. <laughs> all right, what's the most fun word to say in talk pissing? And please use it in a sentence. Oh man, the most fun word. Um, well, it's funny. We use the word ass a lot in talk pissing because, uh, you know, growing up, that was a really bad word, right? I could never <laughs> say that. But in talk pissing, me talk a ass blong ting ting blow me, and me, me like, I don't even talk to Papa God. So basically, the ass is used for everything. That was the foundation of a thought, is okay. called ass. The back of the airplane is ass blong balus. Balus is the airplane. Back of the airplane. Um, so yeah, you get to use that word a lot and, uh, <laughs> uh that's kind of fun, you know, as a, as a, as a and kid you don't growing get detention up in a, pa- in like, a pastor's you know, yeah, family, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I could use that, but coming home, it's always like kids, you know, we're going back to the school, Christian school. Don't use the word ass anymore, please. It's a, it doesn't work over here. That's anyway, hilarious. Yeah. So that's kind of a fun one. And, uh, os place, you'd say, Hey, os place blue and money. It's like, where are you from? Yeah. And the literal translation is, uh, where did you sit your ass as a kid? Ass place. That's amazing. Dude, that's so great. How long did it take that's, you to, to learn? Uh, it took a while. You know, our new staff gets to go over and do three months of language culture, and we they have to get to actually a certain level before we let them fly the airplane and things like that. Because Joel mentioned earlier, you got 100 villagers running at the airplane, and if you don't know how to communicate, yeah. they're grabbing stuff and, you know, grabbing the wings and stuff like that. So... Um, I had to just learn it. So I just learned it from the people. It took a little longer. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, man, it's, it's, uh, you have brought so much uh, joy to my life and our friendship and just your encouragement, um, to kind of have that single focus on what, what it is that God's calling us to and have that be willing to take that, <clears throat> that long journey of faith to see, um, the fruit of, of the calling of God. And so, we just, we're so thankful for you and your friendship. And, and, uh, I look forward to going back to PNG here in a couple of weeks and, uh, doing some more filming yeah. for the dispatch series, telling more stories about, um, your staff and the people who have said yes alongside of you. It's incredible. Like, you know, your wife is, um, that you, you guys, you look like the quintessential San Diego couple, but 
<laughs> you're actually out of place here in San Diego. Like, like that's your home. You fit in there. And, uh, and anyways, it's just incredible. So thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, and, uh, Joseph and I are still, you know, we're still, uh, figuring out this whole podcast thing. So yeah. thanks for making it fun and, and telling such great stories. I thought you were going to say we're still figuring out our pickleball game. Cause we, <laughs> that too. We yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Don't tell Mark that he's going to, he's going to hold me feel good. good. Yeah. We got to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mark. Joel, before we leave. Yeah. Uh, any tantalizing teasers or updates from the world of film? Oh, yes. Actually, we do have uh, episode two of uh, Mark's uh, series on Dispatch. So uh, coming out, I think, next week, if I'm... If I'm, if I'm right, yeah, it, it's, I we just finished the edit. Yep. It's going to go to color and, uh, and get Once sound design that Mark didn't like about it. Yeah. He's yeah. so yeah. needy. Sorry. We can't give you hair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I tried, you know, you think with post-production, you could do something yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is two guys who are uh, well on their way of male pattern baldness. Do you have any, do you have any tips for us? with like, do you just shave it or got to embrace it? Just go, for you know, it, huh? I, I embrace it at a young age. And now honestly, Nobody in New Guinea would even know who I was if I yeah. put, put hair back you on. Look and, good. You look like you, you look know. like a spry Andre Agassi. Oh, thank you, Joel. Yeah, yeah. A, that. a slightly less muscular Mr. Clean. Okay. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know Andre if I like that totally. But, <laughs> I don't but, uh, like that one as much as the Andre. <laughs> oh man, that's good. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, and Joseph, uh, how about you? Any uh, updates from editorial? Yeah. Well, if you didn't already get a chance to read the article that we released this week. So good. Was, yeah, I was really excited for us to release this one. Um, it's from the field. It's out in Afghanistan. And it's this incredible story of this French woman who, I mean, talk about courage, talk about long suffering, and uh, talk about a willingness to go into um, hard and broken places. You know, uh, she's been working in Afghanistan with, uh, with the disabled community and a mm. uh, number of different things. And yeah, left and has gone back. And uh, so it's, it's a story well worth checking out. And we've got some fun ones um, coming out in the next couple of weeks that I will leave unnamed for suspense's sake. <laughs> I like that. Um, quick update too uh, here at Nations Media. As we uh, grow this platform, uh, again, we just want to say thank you for uh, working out all the all the bugs as we go along. And uh, yeah, the website is uh, coming along. So we've got a new designer who's stepping in there doing an incredible job. And so we look forward to revealing the new website here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, just to have a beautiful place to host these stories and these uh, video content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. And an app coming soon, too. So a lot of things in the works. Wow, an app? Wow, there's That's an app for that. That's how you've really made it as a media company when you have your own app. Tell you what. And one thing, guys, I got to plug. Uh, go to SamaritanAviation.org mm -hmm. to, to learn more. Get on it. Sign up on our newsletter as well. Uh, you can go to some, uh, Facebook, Samaritan Aviation, Instagram, stories daily that are going out. Uh, follow us, pray for us, mm -hmm. connect. Um, that's what we would hope for me to come out of this. So. Yeah, we'll put all that in the in the uh, show notes. Is yes. that what you call it? Yes, show learning notes. learning the vocabulary on the podcast platform. That's what we call it. Show notes. I mean, I guess that worked too for the video side. Sure. On, pod, on, on Vimeo or YouTube. And to close us out, we do uh, want to invite you to subscribe to the platform. It's gonna—it's a huge help to us, and it does give you all the access to all these incredible stories that are coming out and video content. You can do that at nations.co. So thank you for tuning in this week. Joseph, final words? No final words. That's it. I'm at a loss for words. Over and out from Nations Media. Thanks, Mark. <coughs> yeah. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>